Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. This is the word of the Lord. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders, and by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned him with glory and honor, so that by grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom all things are, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the, in the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Well, good morning. If you'll notice on your right and on your left, you see new screens. Those were donated by someone in the church. Isn't that a blessing? Now, one of the main functions of those screens is to place the cross-referencing scriptures that I use in the sermon. Because as you know, I reference a lot of scripture. That's what you're supposed to do in a sermon, by the way, in case... You come from somewhere else and they don't do that. They, they tell a bunch of stories and then slap a, you know, some scripture in there out of context. But it's to inform you in case you don't know. Although they're up there, we're waiting on this little gadget that takes our wiring in, in-house here and connects it to these screens. So uh, that's on order. So you don't need to look at them now. Uh, but you can write down the many cross-references of scripture that we will refer to this morning. And our focus this morning will be John's Gospel, chapter 20, as we'll continue our exposition of his Gospel. We'll focus in this morning on verse 17 and 18, but I'll begin reading in verse 11 in order to set the scene, just in case you weren't here last week. So here we are, the Gospel of John, chapter 20, beginning in verse 11. But Mary was standing outside the tomb, weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one of the feet, 
where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and she said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. I pray that the Lord will bless the reading of his word this morning to our hearts to increase in us greater faith in those who are in Christ and of Christ and saving faith to those who are not. The title of the message is The Ascending Relationship of Jesus to His Own. Now, Mary here, by the voice of Jesus, transcends now from dismal suffering to glorious relief. To her utter delight, she turns to Jesus in response to him calling her by name and embraced him in a way that only the words of Jesus can describe when he said, stop clinging to me. You see, in her mind, she was not going to let him out of her sight again. She's not about to let him go. She suffered greatly through this ordeal, his crucifixion, His death, and what she thought to be his missing body from the tomb by someone. But Mary, who was suffering so deeply with the thought that she had lost her Lord, had been relieved by the Lord here at this point as he shown himself to her before anyone else. She understood something of his grace in a way that exceeded the other disciples, beloved. When he called her to himself during his Galilean ministry, she came forth and she followed diligently. You know, Jesus taught ever so clearly. Matthew twenty two fourteen. he said that many are called, but few are chosen. And indeed, the gospel call goes out far and wide, beloved, and it reaches ever so many. But most who hear are like that man in the parable of Matthew 22. They hear, but they are not enabled to heed the truth of the gospel. Mary is one of the many for whom the gospel call went out, but one of the few who were chosen unto saving faith. 
And here she stands. She was a woman who had been filled with seven demons. That Jesus cast out in a moment. Seven is the number of fullness. Consumed by demonic power. She's the first one to whom the Lord revealed himself in resurrection form. She's the first to be told to spread the gospel. Gospel means good news. Jesus came to her when she was desperate, a helpless sinner, not like anyone, not unlike any one of us. Consumed with the world, consumed with seven demons. So Mary loved Jesus greatly because she'd been forgiven so greatly. Jesus said in Luke 7, whoever has been forgiven much, what? Loves much. Mary was, one of the la- Mary was one of the last disciples standing at the cross. Through it all. And one of the first to arrive at the grave. Her love and, and support of him led her there. Her love on behalf of him kept her there. But nevertheless... Her love for him was only the byproduct of his love for her. For we can only love him, 1 John says, because he first loved us. It's that initiated saving love of God in Christ that draws on the heart of sinner. That draws out those he calls to himself. And then as he does that supernatural work in them to draw the sinner to himself, then they must have him. They won't be at peace until they know him. They'll search high and low for him until they find him. Because this desire is unlike any other because it is planted there by God himself. No man can stir this kind of love up for Christ on their own. No one desires to seek after God on their own. It tells us in Romans chapter 3 that no one seeks after God. It is then, after drawing the sinner to himself, calling them by name, transforming them from the inside, that they come to him and then he manifests himself in a way that he does not and will not. To the world. He called her by name. Why? Because she was already his. His word, Mary, shows us that he knows his sheep. Her word, Rabboni, teaches us that his sheep know his voice. Now, In the two verses before us this morning, there's three points of observation for us to look at. Number one is outlined in your bulletin. We see a new lesson. Number two, a new relationship. And number three, a new commission. Again, number one, we see a new lesson in faith for Mary and the disciples. Secondly, we'll look at a new relationship to be had by Mary and the disciples. That includes us and a new commission to be proclaimed by Mary and the disciples. Let's look at point number one. Here we have a new lesson in faith. 
a new lesson in faith. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now, question, why shouldn't Mary touch him like this? Why shouldn't she embrace him? I mean, after all, this would be a very natural response to a woman who comes to the grave looking for a dead Jesus turns around and sees him there, doesn't recognize him, thinks him to be the gardener. He calls her by name. That's how she recognizes him, and she embraces him. My Lord, Rabboni, my master, my teacher. Amen? A very normal response. I mean, we know from paralleling passages of Scripture, such as in Matthew, that Jesus allowed the other women that he revealed himself to, to embrace him. In Matthew 28, verse 9, As Mary's there at the tomb, shortly after this account, the other women had already left, and Jesus reveals himself to them. Matthew 28, 9, and as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Now the word held there means to seize or to retain. But he doesn't tell them, do not cling to me. If you remember in the case of Thomas, the one who doubted the reality reality of these resurrection reports, which we'll look at in the next couple weeks, in John chapter 20, verse 27, he actually says to Thomas, Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Now, Although this seems like a strange response in the case of Mary, he's not saying this with coldness. John uses a particular tense here in the Greek language that suggests that it ought to be said like this. I have not yet entered into the ascended state. Therefore, don't cling to me. Don't worry. I'm not going anywhere yet. So, He means here to stop an action that's already begun rather than to avoid starting it. In other words, Jesus was not protesting that Mary should touch him as though he would become defiled or something. Right? After all, people have taught that before, believe it or not. It's just, that's crazy thinking. How can you defile perfected holiness? The Israelites were not were instructed not to come in contact with lepers. Jesus touched lepers. The only thing that happened when he touched lepers is they got healed. He couldn't become defiled. He's the Holy One of God. He's God incarnate. What he's doing here is he's admonishing her not to cling on or to detain him because he would see her and the disciples again. Remember her mindset here. She's not going to let him go. You're not leaving my sight. No way will I go through this again. He hadn't ascended yet. He's going to be around for another 40 days in and out of their sight. During those 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension, one of his purposes was to grow the faith of these disciples. To grow their faith. He began to remove that physical dimension of his relationship to them. For those 40 days, they couldn't go to him because they wouldn't know where he was. 
They had to learn the beginning stages of living by what, beloved? Faith. Faith. You see, at this point, seeing Jesus resurrected, Mary surely thought that everything was accomplished. He's back. He's risen from the grave to be with us forever and to love us and minister to us as he has for the past three years. He'll never be taken again. He'll never die again. But what she, didn't, what she didn't understand at this point is Jesus, he had to ascend to the right hand of the Father. He had to ascend back to heaven in order that he could minister to her and every other single believer equally as he does today. So he's here, but he's not going to stay here like this. He must ascend in order to pour out the Holy Spirit. God the Spirit. So the fact of the matter here, beloved, is that touching is not the basis of ongoing faith. Seeing, feeling, is not the basis of ongoing faith. So he lovingly, yet boldly and firmly instructs her here, stop clinging to me. I have not yet ascended. It is time for her to be weaned from this kind of relationship with Jesus and to grow spiritually. She must grow to know him differently. Differently than she's known him in the past. Depending, here's here's the key, depending more on his deity than on his humanity. To know Christ as the disciples did during the days of his ministry was to be able to touch him, to see him, to hear him, to, to feel him, to handle him. Those days were coming to an end. He'd no longer be known to them in that way. The Apostle Paul illuminates this truth for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. It says this. 2 Corinthians 5, 16. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. But only by what? The Spirit through faith. By the Spirit through faith. So, how is this, point number one, a new lesson in faith, applicable to us today? Think about it like this. When the Lord so graciously saves a sinner, he grows us in faith and in strength. And for a time, he works in such a way in and through our lives that makes it seem as though he is there for us almost in the physical. He shows himself in his providence in many mighty ways, uh, through activities, opportunities, by way of circumstance and relationships. It's like you turn every corner and wow, there he is. I'll tell you, the first eight months of, of my Christian life, when God radically transformed me, it was he and I alone. I wasn't even in a church. I'd been reading the Bible for a number of months, and all of a sudden, one day, bam, born again. 
I was a new creature in Christ, consumed with the presence of Christ. And from that day on, for about eight, ten months, I was in a Bible study in someone's home. And those poor people (laughs) would have to listen to me every Thursday night about these grand experiences I had during the week. Oh, they were real. And yes, they were from him. But this is what I was going on. Experience, feeling, subjectivity of God's work in and through my life, you see. And oh, they listened so patiently. (laughs) Prayers are answered one after another. I mean, you lift up a prayer and boom, there's the answer. So much so that this young believer lives off of these feelings one after another. But then, it's like in that eight-month period of time, he begins to wean you away from the emotions, away from the feelings, away from these experiential highs, and root you in faith, objective dependence. I mean, this, this is oftentimes the norm of God's grace for the newly converted believer. But he must mature the believer. He weans them away to where these swift answers of prayer are no longer so swift. Can I get an amen on that? But we persevere because we're growing in faith. Because we're praying according to his will. Because we've learned to pray according to scripture, not emotion. We're praying according to objective truth. And we're waiting for objective transformation. Perhaps of those that we love that are lost. And now a deeper faith sets in. And it causes us to depend not on a spiritual relationship with with Jesus that is merely emotional and and, in birth and based out of feelings. But we grow to rely much more dependently upon him according to what we cannot see, what we cannot feel, what we can't smell and touch. This is the lesson in faith. So the main sense of the passage here is that Mary's relationship to Jesus, along with these disciples, is different. It's changing. Okay, but the next question is how? How and why? So now we move from point one to point number two. Point number two is a new relationship to be had. This is the meat of the text, beloved. We're going to spend some time here. This morning. This is the punch. This is what we want to grab onto this morning. And then point one and three, we'll just squeeze it together like a sandwich. Okay? Notice a new relationship to be had. Jesus continues, he says, But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Notice. Jesus tells Mary, go, this is, this is deep, you can't miss this, go to my brothers. Go to my brothers, the brethren. This is, an, this is a very affectionate term. In the past, Jesus has referred to these 11 men as servants, Learners, i.e. disciples, and on the upper room, the night before he went to the cross, for the first time he refers to them as what? Friends. But never as brothers. 
You see, there was a change taking place in their relationship to him and his relationship to them. A great change. And by virtue of the passion of Jesus Christ, which is the cross and his work there, a different relationship has now been inaugurated. One day to be fully consummated in the resurrection. When all those in Christ will have resurrected bodies to be with our resurrected Lord on a resurrected earth. Curse taken away to live forever and to dwell with him forever. This signifies that they are now in a full covenantal relationship with God. A full covenantal relationship with God, which they have only heard of for all of their lives as promised in what we know as the Old Testament. All those great Old Testament promises where God said, I will be their God and they will be my what? My people. It's arrived now by way of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of those Old Testament promises of intimacy with God have been realized now in Christ. A covenantal relationship that's eternal, that's personal, not religious, but relational. Now what does this mean? Theologically, it means many things. But there's two things here that are brought out of the text. Number one, it means that God, who Jesus calls Father, is also our Father. He who is the God and Father of Jesus, who's the Son, is also God and Father of all those who are truly saved. Although he is almighty God and never less than God, he's also Father. God, beloved, who is holy, holy, holy. Untouchable, unapproachable. There's no sinner that's going to step into the presence of he who is holy, holy, holy. Even the angels shudder in his his presence. They cover their face, they cover their feet. In Isaiah 6, The doorposts of the temple shake because of the holiness of God. No one steps into the presence of this holy God. We are defiled, wretched, rotten sinners. It's impossible. But through Christ, he paves the way. He grants the sinner access. He's holy. God is not the Father of everyone in the world, beloved. God is only the father of those who are saved through the finished work of his son, Jesus Christ. So you can't say, God's just all of our father. He's all of us, our father. Sinner, saved or unsaved, wrong. (laughs) The scripture says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, for those who are not yet in Christ, they are actually aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in this world. But we who are in Christ, verse 13, Ephesians chapter 2, once were far off, but we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You see, beloved, you are sons and daughters 
who have God as your Father. The one who is holy, holy, holy. Secondly, if Jesus refers to the Father as his God and Father, and refers to his Father as the disciples' God and Father, he is therefore also us who sit here today, we who sit here today, our God and Father. And if he, God, is our Father, we then have Jesus as our elder brother. If God is our Father, Jesus is our elder brother. Well, but he's Lord. Is he Lord? Yes. He's Master. Yes. Savior. Yes. My elder brother? Answer? Yes. Yes, if you're in Christ. In his first resurrection appearance, he refers to his disciples as his redeemed, his family. Family. This is why Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 reads as follows, from which Junior read this morning, preceding the sermon. Hebrews 2.11, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. Sanctified means to be set apart unto holiness. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. He's not ashamed, ladies, to call you sisters. Why? That's a good question. Why? Why wouldn't he be? Well, because as Christians, we share the same paternity as well as the same bloodline. The same paternity and the same bloodline as our elder brother Jesus. A bloodline that's been served to make us family, served to us, given to us. This is what he purchased at Calvary. He bought you. If you're in Christ, you, this relationship comes at a great, great price. Never take it for granted. You were bought at a great price. Now, though Jesus is our elder brother, there's definite, definite differences in the brotherhood here. Amen? Okay? Jesus is the son by generation. We are sons and daughters by regeneration which I'll explain in a moment. Jesus is son by nature, and we are sons by grace. Jesus is the eternal son, the everlasting son, always has been, always will be. We are made sons in time. He's the only begotten, unique son of God, and we are adopted sons of God. And that, my friends, is the doctrine that is in view this morning. Write this down. The doctrine of adoption. The glorious doctrine of adoption. Mary, the disciples, and all who are truly saved by grace are adopted into God's family. Galatians 4.4 God sent forth his Son. Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. 
What did Mary do to earn this adoption? Just don't answer aloud. Think about it. What did Mary do to earn this adoption? What did the 11 do to earn this adoption? What did you, who are in Christ this morning, do to earn this adoption? Answer? Absolutely nothing. They are the recipients, my friends, of sovereign grace. You are the recipient of sovereign grace, predestined and justified by grace and grace alone. That's why Ephesians says this, chapter 1, verse 5. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. That's what he did. He predestined those that are his to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to what? Not what you do, not what you've done, but according to this, the scripture says, according to the good pleasure of his will. His will. Well, what about my will? Well, you were predestined according to his will, not yours. The scripture is clear as day. What does this tell us? Salvation then, in, in, in the final analysis as defined in Scripture, is not a human accomplishment, but is always and forever the gift of God's sovereign grace. Sovereign grace. Does it make you want to do that? You say sovereign? Sovereign grace. <laughs> I even have bruised ribs this morning and just I'll say it through the pain. Listen to Titus 3. Write this down. Titus 3, verse 5. How are we saved, beloved? Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of, market regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been, market justified, by his grace, we should become market heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There's three doctrines in view in that, in, in, in Titus 3. The doctrine of regeneration, the doctrine of justification, and the doctrine of adoption. That's what it is to be an heir. Now, the sinner by God's sovereign grace is first and foremost, above everything else, born from above. Jesus said, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom. Unless you're born literally means from above, you can't perceive the things of God, you can't receive God, accept God, or walk with God, or go into heaven with God. Unless you are regenerated. Now, regeneration has to do with a change of our nature. We're all born on an equal playing ground. We're all born sinners by what? Nature. Go home and watch your one-year-old kid today. One and a half, two years old especially, and you will see the sin nature of children. It's easy. It's easy. Just tell them no a couple times and see what they do in response. Sin nature. We're born with it. That sin nature has to be miraculously transformed to be accepted by God. 
That's called regeneration. That's what it is to be born again. God has to do that work. The sinner has no capacity, no ability whatsoever to cause himself or herself to be born again. That's regeneration. When God regenerates someone's nature, at that moment, he also justifies them. That's the doctrine of justification. means to be declared free from all blame. It grants the sinner acquittal from guilt and punishment. That's a good thing. (laughs) Set free. Never to stand trial for your sin. Never to stand trial for your sin nature. You're regenerated and and thereby justified. And not only does justification set the sinner free from guilt and shame, at the same time, it also, don't miss this, wake up if you're sleeping, it also makes you righteous. That's what justification does. Never to stand as a guilty sinner and have to be judged for your sin. That's one thing justification does. And it also makes you righteous. So that when God looks at the sinner, saved by grace, who's justified, all he sees is the perfect righteousness of his son. Regenerated and justified. And because you're regenerated and thereby justified, that is how you're adopted. So regeneration is not adoption, and adoption is not regeneration. Justification is not adoption, and adoption is not justification. People get those things mixed up. Regenerated, thereby justified, and because you're justified, having been regenerated, you are therefore an adopted heir of Christ, a child of God. That's rich. So adoption then, is God's act of making otherwise estranged human beings part of his spiritual family as he includes them as inheritors of the riches of divine glory. An inheritor. Don't you wish you had a rich uncle that was worth about, I don't know, $100 million? Someone knocked on your door one day and said, hey, you're an inheritor. Of, what did I say, 500 million? 500 million dollars, fill in the blank. (laughs) You're going to inherit the glory of God in Christ. Because you've been adopted in Christ. You have a bloodline that makes God your father, and Jesus your savior, and your brother. And guess what, beloved? Because God is your father and Jesus is your elder brother, these people sitting around you are your closest kin. This is your true family if you're in Christ. Your true family. This is your eternal family. It's no wonder John had such a sense of awe with regard to this family matter. As he writes in 1 John chapter 3, Verse 1, Behold, he said, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called what? Sons of God. You see, the gospel's all about relationships. Restoration and establishment of relationships. Remember when Adam and Eve were in the garden? 
God created man and woman in his image, and in his image he created them male and female. They had a perfect union, a perfect, holy, sinless union with God, and a perfect, holy, sinless union with one another. And then they sinned and changed all of that immediately. Adam and Eve, their first response, they attempted to cover their shame and their guilt. They covered their nakedness. They couldn't do it. They can't hide from God. And subsequent to the fall, all relationship changed at that very moment. Even the best earthly, earthly relationships that you have ever experienced are tainted with the frustration, the deficiency, and the disappointment of sin. Experienced that this week? You see, what the gospel ensures is that relationships will be different and they will be brought back to perfection one glorious day when we're all with the Lord. When all of the effects of the fall are eradicated, but that day is not now. That day is yet future. (laughs) Nevertheless, we as children of God who've been adopted by God, we can experience the gospel's transforming effect on our relationships now by grace alone, through faith, by way of the presence and the person of God the Holy Spirit. That's how. Now, because we're adopted... Because we're adopted, we have a new relationship. And the significance of our adoption affects for us every single relationship we have. Okay, we're going to look at five relationships that the true Christian has, okay? We're going to move through these rather swiftly. But the first relationship that our adoption affects is our relationship to God, number one. We are His, we're called His own. And he calls us his own eternally. He calls us his own righteously, and he calls us his own justifiably because we are his alone by grace alone. Unmerited favor. His adopted children quickly learn that true security is found only in the household of God. Now, you may know that. You may know that truth, you may embrace that truth, but on any given day of the week, because we still have sin that we fight against, amen? We still have flesh that we battle against. When you fall prey to that in disobedience, you may not feel like a child of God. So the great Puritan writer John Cotton comments on this. I'm going to quote Cotton a number of times this morning. He said this, quote, Nothing in life is secure except God. He alone does not change. Our shortcomings incline us to confess that I'm not a child of God because I find much pride in my heart. I see so much rebellion and corruption in my spirit. Surely if I were born of Christ, I should be like him. You ever feel like that? Come to me about Thursday. And I'll tell you, I've already probably felt like that myself. So Cotton raises the question, but... What says John the Apostle here? We are the sons of God even now. 
Though there's much unbelief in our hearts and much weakness and many corruptions within us, despite all of this, Jesus will show us that our Heavenly Father's love is expansive and glorious beyond imagination. Now hang that in your head. Hang that in your heart. And think about this. Jesus never called his disciples brethren, i.e. brothers, until they had all forsaken him. They're hiding out. As you'll find out in a little while, they're weeping in sorrow over his death. And Jesus says, go tell my brothers that I'm ascending. Do you see here the mercy and the grace of our Lord? As children of God adopted in, how it seems that as our sin and our ignorance and our failures are exposed on any given day, his grace seems to grow even more so to cover them. That's what it is to be a child of God. On a day-to-day basis. Where, where sin abounded, what? Grace abounded much more, you see? So here now, this first relationship that our adoption affects is our relationship to God. Now, if you're a child of God, beloved, if you know you're saved by grace and you're here this morning and you've been living in sinful rebellion, you've been living in unrepentant sin, you're living falsely in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, this kind of grace, this kind of wondrous love ought to break your heart unto repentance. Amen, somebody, come on. Yes. Because you're his. Because he paid a price for you. If you've been living faithlessly or fleshfully, ungratefully or cold or indifferent, this manner of love, this kind of grace, this abundant mercy ought to bring you back to seek his face and his forgiveness. You see, you're already forgiven once and for all and forever. Positionally, as Christians, as adopted children of God, you're, you're positionally forgiven. But why then do we have to confess our sins and ask for forgiveness today when I sin? Because we have to ask for his forgiveness paternally. You're forgiven positionally, and your union is everlasting. You can't mess up your union if you're in Christ, but we sure can mess up our communion, can't we? Therefore, we confess our sins and ask that the Father forgive us. Because he owns you, and even though in our weakness, he still calls us brethren. Second, our adoption affects our relationship to the church as the family of God. Our adoption affects our relationship to the church. Now, as God's adopted sons and daughters, we've been placed into this great family. Now, I know some of you in this room were adopted as children. And if I asked you, well, how did you come about who you chose as your parents? You'll answer what? Well, I didn't select my parents. They selected me. Okay? In salvation, who chooses who? God chooses those he places into his family. 
This is a family created by him. This is a family through whom Christ will be glorified as the first, the firstborn among many brethren. That's a big old family. Cotton says again, God wants the love that exists between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to be extended through the love between brothers and sisters. The children of God ought to be the people of our love and our delight. When I meet people who say, I'm a Christian, why don't you go to church? Because I don't like Christians. (laughs) Really? Then I question whether or not you're a Christian, brother, right? 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. (laughs) Because we love those in the family. I mean, who would a believer desire to be around more than another another adopted heir of Christ? Amen? It's one thing to hang out with our unsaved family and friends and and, and attempt to witness the gospel of Jesus Christ to them, but there's no place like home in the midst of those who share fellowship with the same Lord of glory. That's why Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace to the earth, but a sword to divide a mother from a, a, a daughter and a father from a son. 1 John 4.20 If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he, how on earth, I'll just insert that myself, how on earth can he love God whom he's not seen? It's not possible. The communion of the saints What we have going on here, the communion of the saints is essential to the proclamation and the proof of the gospel. How do we know that? Because they, the world, will know you by what? Not the love that you have for the lost. They will know you, Jesus said, by the love you have for one another. The proof is in the proclamation. The proclamation provides proof that we're his, that we're adopted. Cotton says again, if we show little love to other children of God, we prove that we have tasted little of God's love in our lives. The lack of love to any of our brethren is a sign of abiding in the state of damnation or in an unregenerate and carnal state. That is a heavy statement. But all that is is commentary on 1 John 4.20. Number three. Our adoption affects our relationship to the future. Because we're adopted heirs of Christ, that affects our relationship to the future. Now, we as children of God, we cherish a great hope, do we not? We're Christians, so we live in hope. We have hope. We have hope of the future. We have hope of resurrected bodies on a resurrected earth, a resurrected heaven and earth. 1 John 3, 2 says this, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. That's our hope, beloved. 
But even here and now, as we live in this fallen earth, we can experience, and we do, great blessings, do we not? Despite our infirmities and despite our sins, we every day experience God's grace in our lives. And as great as those blessings are here and now, because we're his own, we have yet a full inheritance awaiting us. Without spot and without wrinkle. He's changing us now. He's conforming us into the image of his son so that we can one day fully bear his image, you see. Therefore, when we see him, we will then be like him. Paul tells us in Romans 8, that the whole creation waits for the day when the inheritance of the children of God will be given to them. This cursed earth groans, waiting for the day when the inheritance of the children of God will be given to them. That's our future, beloved. Number four. Our adoption affects our relationship to ourselves. Our adoption in Christ affects our relationship to ourselves. Now, every adopted child of God knows that holiness is an essential part of God's purpose for us. Amen? Be ye holy for what? I am holy, says the Lord. 1 John 3.8, it says this. Everyone who has this hope, the hope I just read about, also in 1 John. Everyone who has this hope that when we see him, we'll be just be like him. We'll be just like him. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. The Greek word for purify refers to undivided allegiance. Undivided allegiance to the one who bought us at a great price having one's eyes focused on a single goal. Cotton says, purifying ourselves involves the whole man. Okay, check this out. Purifying ourselves involves the whole man, including what we do with our minds, with our affections, our wills, our thoughts, our tongues, our eyes, our hands, our disappointments, our injuries, and our enemies. Purifying ourselves involves loving all that the Father loves and hating all that the Father hates. End quote. Those Puritan writers, boy, they had a high view of God and a proper view of Scripture. You see, the world that misunderstands us, beloved, who misunderstands the God we serve, are the ones here who are in desperate need to hear the message that set us free. They're not going to understand. Our relationship in Christ, being adopted heirs of Christ, affects all these relationships, the last one being our relationship to the world. Our relationship to the world. When a sinner is born again and brought into the family of God, they soon discover that worldly people no longer understand them and don't care a whole bunch for them. Amen? 
I mean, their own family members accused them of being over the top. The mama who dragged their kid to church all these years, all of a sudden now the kid's truly born again, and the kid truly loves God, and the kid truly has a true relationship with God, and understands the meaning of the word of God, their mom is intimidated by now, and their mom calls them a freak. There's two young men in this church. One of them, their mother said, you're over the top with this Bible reading business. What church is this that you go to? Another one. His mom threatened him if he becomes a member here of this church. He has to move out. This is what and how the world receives our adoption in Christ. They don't understand this zeal for God because they don't share this zeal for God. Cotton says again, adoption into God's family means that we must be willing for Christ's sake to endure being misunderstood, unwanted, despised, and even hated by the world. All the while, this is important, friends, we must not miss this, all the while striving to give no unnecessary offense to the world. See, the gospel in and of itself is very offensive, beloved. We don't want to add to that offense, amen? We proclaim it and we just leave it be. Finally, because this world that doesn't understand this adoption and this relationship and we're affected, this relationship's affected, we have to keep in mind that this is the message that we've been saved by that we need to take to them. That leads us to the last point. Finally, a new commission to be proclaimed. A new commission to be proclaimed. Verse 18. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Mary, beloved, Mary, Mary from Magdala, the one who had been filled with seven demons that Jesus ordered out, became a follower of Jesus Christ, was the last one at the cross, the first one at the tomb, is the first evangelist of Jesus Christ's resurrection. I mean, this fact alone is another expression as to the credibility and authenticity of Scripture being divine rather than human in origin. You see, if God hadn't divinely written his word through these apostles, there is no way that these men would pen the words that a woman was the first one to the tomb. Not in a million years had the Lord's resurrection been some kind of fabricated tale of the first century, she wouldn't be the one recorded to have been the first one there and the first one to proclaim this truth. Why not? Because in the first century, the testimony of a woman carried no credibility whatsoever. A woman's testimony wasn't even considered admissible in the court of law. So do we see here how all through the Lord's ministry, Jesus elevates the dignity of women in their proper biblical role to function as he has ordained. This is true dignity. This is true freedom. See, this movement of the 60s is no freedom for women. 
this egalitarian mindset that exists today. It's corrupted society. This is true dignity. This is truly lifting women up to where they belong. So here she is now. She's the first messenger of the gospel. Gospel means good news. So she goes and she proclaims this truth. How is it received? Well, Mark tells us in chapter 16, verse 10, that she went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. That's what they were doing, mourning and weeping. When they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. How disappointing must this, this, how must, must this have been for her? Very disappointing. But you know what? Preachers experience this, those who preach the true gospel. They experience this every week, every day. They proclaim this truth and people sleep through it. The lost, they laugh through it, at the least. And then they go out complacent, just as they were when they came in. Now, if that's not bad enough, sometimes God's people, when they hear this truth, they say, yeah, I know the resurrection. I know the cross. Yes, the blood of Jesus. That's a bad attitude. Oftentimes, God's people are unmoved to his divine truth. They will leave here unmoved with the reminder of the glorious gospel. But they'll go home and they'll be greatly moved by movies. They'll be greatly moved by their favorite movie star. And they'll be greatly moved by their little Facebook account. No desire to meditate on the deeper truths of the gospel or the cross and all that Christ has accomplished in our adoption. You won't hear those conversations. But guys will run home and play their video games after they take off the braces for the carpal tunnel that they have from playing those video games. (laughs) A brother in the church was telling me of a church in town that he used to attend which has a lot of uh, celebrities living in the neighborhood of that church. He said the pastor would actually allow one of these movie stars or TV stars, whatever they are, I don't know who it is, to stand behind the pulpit and address the people. He said when they would send out a flyer that that person or persons were going to speak, you could not find a place to park in the parking lot. The people of the church... We're drawn all right, but it wasn't because of the competence of this celebrity in the scriptures. It was because of their celebrity. But do a, do a three-week study on the doctrine of adoption and see how full the parking lot is. Amen? Now, that was a side note in the last sermon, and that's a side note now as well. I thought I'd keep it in there. Okay, so moving on. Mary sends word to these disciples. They don't believe. They refuse to believe. And it says that when the Lord actually stepped into their presence, he was not pleased with their unbelief. Mark 16, verse 14. Afterwards, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. Reproached here is a very strong word. And it means to chide or to rail at. 
He rebukes them. You see, beloved, because, according, look at your little outline, you're going to be given ongoing new lessons in faith to grow you in the faith. Because of your new relationship that was established way back here, the relationship you have as adopted children of God, and because you have this new, this, this new lessons in faith given to you daily, given to you regularly, because of this relationship that we have with God our Father and Jesus our elder brother, we're to take this message out. This commission is to be proclaimed today as it was then. And when you proclaim that truth, you will be more times than not rejected. Just like Mary was. But what keeps us going? Joy. You see, faithful ministers who are faithful to the truth know that the power is in the gospel, not in the people. So you just keep on, keep on, keep on preaching and proclaiming the truth, knowing that the power is in the word. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. See, the majority of the people, they do not want a true soul-saving gospel. They have itching ears and therefore want another gospel. You see, this gospel, this good news transcends time. Mary's commission is our commission. We who are adopted heirs of Jesus Christ can say with Mary, you know what we can say? I've seen the Lord and this is what he says. We proclaim the same message, amen? So we're commissioned to proclaim the message given to Mary. So when your family and your friends reject this good news, even reject you, remember this. They're rejecting you in this message because you're in the will and you're in the way of God. You're walking according to his will and his way. And even when you're rejected, you will have joy because you understand that you've been regenerated, you're justified by faith, declared free from all blame, and therefore you are an adopted heir of Christ, a child of God. Household of faith. Because you have gone and I have gone from being children of the devil to sons and daughters of God. And I close with this. Willemus Abrockel, another Puritan preacher and pastor, wrote this on adoption. Adoption has taken us from being a child of the devil to becoming a child of God. From being a child of wrath to becoming the object of God's favor. From being a child of condemnation to becoming an heir of all the promises and a possessor of all blessings. And to be exalted from the greatest misery to the highest felicity. This is something which exceeds all comprehension and all adoration. End quote. That's your adoption, beloved. Children of God. Covenantal, the covenantal promises of God bestowed to you this very day because Jesus raised up from the grave and he said, go tell my brothers and sisters that I'm ascending to my father and your father and my God and your God as our elder brother. Our brother. So hopefully, beloved, if you're in Christ this morning, you who are in Christ will be greatly edified and encouraged in this glorious, glorious truth that we're adopted heirs of Christ. But perhaps you're here this morning as a helplessly lost sinner. 
this is all foreign to you. And you're doing the old uh, Looney Tunes get hit on the head cartoon guy who goes, what is this, right? (laughs) Well, I want to assure you of this. Don't pack it up yet. If you're here and you are not certain that if you were to die today, if you were to die today, that you would not be in the presence of Almighty God, covered by the righteous blood of Jesus Christ, if you feel as though seven devils indwell you, let me assure you of this. There is no sin that can hinder the saving work of God in Christ. There's no force that can conquer his power. If you feel as though I feel like I'm the woman who's filled with seven demons, his power can conquer that and fill you with the sevenfold work of the Holy Spirit according to Isaiah 11. That's what he does under the preaching and proclamation of his word coming down over the people. Well, how do I accept, how do I become a child of God? Well, let me tell you, you must be regenerated, number one. But he just said, there's nothing I can do about that. That's right. It takes the miracle of God. You must be regenerated by God, and he will therefore justify you in God. He'll declare you free from all blame. He will actually make you righteous because of the blood of Christ. And then you're adopted in as children. Because the Bible says this, all non-Christians are dead in trespasses and sins. According to Ephesians 2. The Bible says in Romans 8 that the carnal mind is at enmity with God. You, my friend, if you're not in Christ, are at war with God. He's actually at war with you. But I'm a good person. You have to be perfect to step into the presence of the one who's holy, holy, holy. Or you have to be covered by the perfect one, Jesus, in his blood that was shed at Calvary. It's the only way. Left to himself, left to yourself this morning, the sinner, my friend, is not able to seek after God and his forgiveness. The Bible's clear. No one seeks after God. No one can seek after God. Then you go, what do I do? No, it takes God to save you. And you see, he has you here to hear this proclaimed truth. All the way back in the Old Testament, God used to tell his prophets and his preachers, I want you to go preach. I command my servants to preach. And he had his servants preach in Ezekiel 37 to valleys of dry, dead bones. That would seem ludicrous to us, wouldn't it? They're dead, dry bones. God said to his servants, he made it clear, I will bless the preaching of my word. You just preach it and I will breathe life into those bones. I will put sinews on those bones. I will resurrect those dry, dead bones. I will put ligaments on them and skin on them and I will raise them to life. You just preach the word. Faith comes by hearing Hearing by the words of Christ. You, my friend, are commanded to Scripture to turn from your sin. Cry out to God for mercy to transform you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Embrace Him with your whole life. 
you forsake everything to come to Christ. And let me tell you, I will assure you that if it's him doing the work in you that brings you to spiritual life, he will grant you the ability to turn from that sin and turn to him, and you will soon realize in a very short period of time, I am a new creature in Christ. I believe I never did before. I couldn't believe. I'm a child of God. And what that preacher said according to the word, I'm adopted as a child of God. That's the gospel. Man is incapable. He's impotent, powerless. The power's in the gospel. I command you to repent and come to Christ today and you shall be saved. Father, we thank you for the power of the gospel. We thank you that you sent your son to make a way and to make a highway provision to you as Father through your Son, our Savior and our elder brother, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, who came out of heaven, took on human flesh to bear the sin of the world, to live the law out perfectly as the Holy One, to lay his life down and then to take it up again, raising from the dead, declaring that whosoever shall believe shall be saved. And I pray, Lord, for those who came in this morning unbelieving that they would, bl- they would leave here today in Christ, children of the Most High. They would understand that you are Father and Jesus is Savior and Brother. Pray that you'll bless your people, your church this morning. They'd be edified in the gospel, reminded of the gospel, and all that it cost you so that we could say we're children of God. Bless them, keep them, strengthen them, I pray, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.